Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome back to Better Words. Hello. This is another fun episode, and I probably didn't need to say that because you already said that anyway. (laughs) Well, it's actually our penultimate episode for this season, which is very exciting. Um, So this is a wonderful interview that we've got today. We had so much fun recording this. And after we share our final interview of the season, we also do plan to like do a couple of bonus episodes just us, if you can put up with us, um, yeah. talking about probably reflecting back on like our favourite books of the year and things like that as well. Yeah, everything else that we've been reading and watching and listening to this year because 2020 has been nothing if not a year of a lot of content consuming. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we only started doing the monthly wrap-ups in Except July. September. Oh, July maybe? I was like, I don't know, September? I can't remember. (laughs) So, you know, there's a few more months to catch up on, but I do think we could do like a best of our top ones. And it doesn't matter if we've mentioned them before because you can just listen to it as a best of. This is the best of, the absolute tip-top recommendation. So, yeah, we'll get to that towards (laughs) the end of the year. (laughs) Yeah, that can be a little Christmas treat from us. But for now, we've got two more, you know, lovely interviews to share. So yeah, that would be really good. But before we get into that today, you know, we usually do like a book club. Well, we've decided to do a film club, like a TV club this week, (laughs) because we thought that it would be the perfect chance to chat about The Crown, because we're both obsessed with it. It only just came out, season four just came out on Netflix. We've had a week to watch as much of it as we can and now talk about it and yes there will be spoilers if you can call them spoilers because it is based on real life history I know and unfortunately I think that is the thing one of the things that I find saddest about the whole series is particularly in seasons three and four where we have lots of interactions with Charles and Camilla. The Camilla character is introduced in season three, but Diana not till season four. And I mean, you know, can't go back and change it, but watching it all, it just makes me really sad that they weren't allowed to be together from the beginning because they clearly loved each other. They're still together now after it all, you know, that's really sad. I mean, I think this is the perfect place to start, isn't it? So the central uh, sort of narrative that everyone's hooked on this season is Diana, Charles and Camilla. And I think a lot of people were probably surprised at how open and obvious it was that he was having an affair, that he was still seeing Camilla, even though he had become engaged to Diana and then was going to marry her. Exactly. It's one of those things that I think now we kind of say that everyone knew, like their families, you know, kind of like that high class royal friends or whatever, but like us, the general public probably didn't really know. 
No, I mean, everyone I mean, was we just... can't say for sure because we were not alive then, but... <laughs> exactly. exactly. Like, spoiler alert, we were born in the 90s. Um, I, were you even born when Diana was killed? Um, when did she die? 96, mm, right? 97. I want to say 97. I want to say I was either, like, just born. She died in August 1997. Okay. So I was not a year old. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, the crown. Okay, back to the crown. Um, so the other. The I, oh, I was, was going to say the other parallel sort of storyline this season in the crown is that Margaret Thatcher is prime minister. Um, so mm-hmm. there's lots of episodes about um, her first trip out to the Balmoral Castle to hang out with the royal family, and oh, I never thought that I would feel sympathy for Margaret Thatcher. But that episode, I was like, these people are assholes. Yeah, and it's just they're a bit ridiculous because the royal family obviously has their traditions and they are wealthy and privileged and, you know, they're hanging out at this castle hunting, playing their own little games and and they all know each other, you know, no matter what. Like Margaret and her husband were the... They were the guests. They were new. They were outsiders. And they just felt really out of place. And it was kind of sad, wasn't it? The whole thing was a test, obviously. It, like, yeah. And they say that. They say that there are tests in it. This, It was yeah. so childish and horrible. And I just... I oh, do like horrible. the creative license there, though, where um, Margaret Thatcher and her husband are not really fitting into this Balmoral Castle lifestyle and something comes up and they leave right as Princess Diana arrives and she is a hit. And I was like, there's no way that actually happened on the same weekend. But I love that of the crown, that like, oh, guess who does fit into the royal family? (laughs) Diana (laughs) Spencer. Oh, but only for a short time because actually, no, she doesn't. And this is what we sort of learn the more that we watch it. Now, the reason I wasn't surprised by any of this, if, if you've been watching The Crown season four and thinking, this is not the Diana that I've been told about and this is not what I thought and I didn't know anything about this, totally fine. The only reason none of this surprised me and probably didn't surprise you either, Caitlin, is because a few weeks ago I was recommending to you to listen to a podcast called You're Wrong About. They had just started doing a Princess Diana deep dive. And I I don't think that they intentionally did this because they're based in America. I don't think that the crown date was even From memory, they don't discuss the crown as a series at all, which I actually found quite funny because there were some things that they said about the royal family and about I think there was one thing about how uh Lord Mountbatten set up Camilla to marry um Andrew Parker Bowles and I was like and they said something about not knowing who Lord Mountbatten was and I was like have you watched the cramp he's I'm I'm gonna take a wild stab in the dark and say I don't think that they have I I don't think it's 
as popular in America. I might be wrong, Maybe American not. listeners. If we have any, please let us know. I don't think it's popular over there. I feel like it's been very, very much publicised in the UK, obviously, yeah. um, and in Australia by extension to the Commonwealth countries. Um, but I don't, I don't think that they did this intentionally. But the fifth episode dropped the week before so it was such a nice primer and I said Caitlin you have to listen to it um so there's five episodes that they did as like a Diana series that talk about a little bit about Diana you know before she met Charles um and then up to their wedding her childhood uh their wedding their dating time whatever we're calling that um their children obviously um and their marriage into divorce and then post-divorce and unfortunately her death. Both their affairs as well. Yeah. I mean, so many affairs. Oh my gosh. So there is a lot. I mean, this, this really, I think I said to you, like, it's so, it's so sort of funny, this idea that, that Princess Diana actually was a bit of the crazy ex-girlfriend in a couple of situations mm-hmm. of like, calling people up allegedly and all this sort of stuff. They go through all of those allegations and it just, the whole thing made me feel sadder for the whole situation because yeah, absolutely. I think we've always, I'm not doubting that Princess Diana was an amazing human being in so many ways. Like they do talk about her legacy as well. And like, I, I don't think it can be understated what she did, especially for like HIV AIDS awareness, particularly at a mm-hmm. time when, you know, even touching an AIDS patient was seen as, you know, it was like leprosy or, you know, that yeah, it somehow it was like it. It. Yeah. yeah, it was just so misunderstood. She did amazing, amazing, amazing things in that respect. But just because you are an amazing person does not always make you a good person in a relationship. And this goes for Charles as well. I think you can be a bad person in a relationship Absolutely. and still be a good person overall because I think Charles has done a lot of things wrong and did a lot of things wrong to Diana but that doesn't make him a bad person overall and yeah. I think they both are good parents they love their children from what I can see yeah but and the they, thing they, is, weren't is that like, they weren't right for each other they didn't love each other they, you know, they made, might have had like five minutes of loving each other in their entire relationship and it just, yeah. it's not really what either of them wanted or signed up for by, you know, as it turned out. And I think the other thing that people always forget is that when they got married, Diana was 19 and Charles was like 32. And yeah. that's just a really big age difference. And she was so young to be thrust into everything. And just because of the timing as well, it was really a time where media and paparazzi and everything was just getting like bigger and bigger and bigger. And I mean, this is still even in the eighties. This is bef- imagine if we had Princess Diana in like the Instagram age. Oh my oh, gosh! Oh. Well, basically, the reason why I think especially when it comes to the royals, paparazzi have such, I guess, strict rules now is Mm -hmm. because of what they did to Princess Diana. And you know what? It's because of what we as a society did because the only reason, and they go through this in, I think think it's the final episode of of your Wrong About series, the fact that they do say, like, we are partly to blame for her death because the reason the paparazzi... 
Yeah, the reason the paparazzi were chasing that car was because a photo of her went from what, like a couple of thousand dollars to being like a million dollars because yeah. of us, the public, wanting that information. And I think we need to acknowledge that we do that and we still do that to people today. We were talking about this in our fame episode with um, Francis Chapman last week yeah. saying, you know, the pressure that we put on people it's it's just unbelievable. It's like we don't learn. It's just because we look at them and think, oh, my God, your life's perfect and we want to see this. But actually we're eroding their sort of life. And, you know, yeah, does wealth make up for that? I think the main thing that I want to say about this is that I definitely have become more of a Republican after this. <laughs> Like, not for anyone who listens in America, not a Republican Republican, not like that, but like any of our Australian people will know. So, yeah, if, as in, again, not if you want, the Commonwealth. <laughs> yeah, so if you weren't, um, you know, around in Australia in the 90s, um, there was a referendum to see whether we should leave the Commonwealth and become a republic. Um, so... Again, for any listeners who aren't familiar with Australia, I know that I'm I'm just speaking the obvious to our lovely Australian listeners, but um, I know people in the UK don't necessarily know anything about Australia. <laughs> like, no offence, but you don't get taught about it. So basically we have a prime minister, but to get laws passed, they also have to, so the, the, the parliament votes on it and then we take that to the Governor-General and the Governor-General signs off on it. The Governor General is the Queen's representative in Australia. So it's basically like saying the Queen has essentially approved any laws that are passed. Back in the oldy days, before we had a Governor General, those laws would have to be approved by the monarch. Yeah. And there is a discussion, this is relevant because there is a discussion of this in the Crown with Richard Roxburgh as Bob Hawke. Yeah, I mean... Brilliant. Legend. I as soon as I saw that, like Jack was like, Why are you getting so excited? I was like, I cannot believe that the same person who played Rake is playing (laughs) Bob Hawke. Like, yeah. It's so he was so good. And he's I really liked about that episode is like, you know, I am by no means a Australian politics expert, but generally Aussies, when they talk about Bob Hawke. Um, and everything you know there's so many classic lines that you know we still reference and still get shown on like little clips and everything Which and we will include in the show notes because yeah, like Aussies, brilliant Aussies love Bob Hawke because he's so Aussie and he was like kind of larrikin and watching it and like that immediately at the very beginning of episode six when they're talking about Charles and Diana going to Australia and how the queen is like good news or bad news and she's like oh and she doesn't like Bob Hawke and I was like I never thought of it before but of course she doesn't but she also (laughs) referenced the fact that he held like the world world record for sculling a yard glass of beer which is exactly why Australians (laughs) like him I know. And and he was doing that well into his 80s. He did it at the cricket. Oh. There's some great footage of him as like an old man sculling. A, a, I don't think he did a yard glass again, but sculling a pint of beer. Oh, he's so brilliant. Um, But I was raised in a very conservative household who didn't necessarily 
like Bob Hawke, but at the same time, I'm pretty sure that my mum, I'll have to double check, but I'm pretty sure that my mum worked in Old Parliament House at the same time as Bob Hawke was Prime Minister. But there's a wonderful quote as well of when we won the America's Cup and he said something like, anyone who sacks someone today for not turning up to work is a bum. Like he's just so iconic. Um, So, yeah, I think, but I think it's so true what he said in that he's like, well, Diana's just set back the cause of republicanism in this country, you know, for X amount of years. He said, yeah. And it's, and I mean, it's so true. We didn't have a referendum until I'm pretty sure it was 99. Um, And even there, even now people in Australia will talk about the fact that like, oh, well, we may as well just wait until Lizzie dies and then, then we'll probably get out. And then see, yeah. Yeah. But every new royal baby, every new, like there is such love for that in Australia. But I really, after listening to that, you're wrong about and then watching this episode of the crown I really I'm just left thinking what is the point of the royals like what is their point in a modern society and I think the other thing that brought that home to me as well was their episode with Michael Fagan yeah Um, that was a brilliant episode so that that definitely I mean I want to talk about this a bit later the uh the historical license they've taken with a lot of things but what I what I do think is that showed beautifully the class and wealth divisions in this country, which there is has never been a more poignant time to discuss that than right now, mm-hmm. in the midst of coronavirus, when you know England is being run by essentially a bunch of toffs, Tory toffs, who all went to private colleges and have no experience of actually living in a situation where they have no, and you know what, I don't either. I'm quite privileged in that respect, but I would say I came from like a pretty working class family. My dad was a taxi driver. So when I then hear stories in England of taxi drivers who are literally losing everything and being hounded for money by, you know, their car rental companies or whatever and they haven't been able to work because of covid and there are hundreds of thousands of taxis sitting in a field doing nothing in london you know i understand what that that may have felt like because if that had happened when i was growing up we wouldn't have had any food you know and we wouldn't have had a house and we wouldn't have had a roof over our head because taxi driving was all that was paying that right so i just think that this has brought home I think even more in this current situation. I agree. What is the point of the royal family? I don't know. I mean, and I agree though about this season of The Crown in particular reflecting on modern times because the other thing that I think is most clear and most deliberate in this season of The Crown is an episode where <laughs> Prince Philip <gasps> kind of challenges Uh, Queen Elizabeth to choose a favorite child and so she has individual lunches with them all and she interviews her own children because she doesn't know what's happening in their life I mean (gasps) mean, they're all pretty much adults like they can do their own thing and like two of them he was at boarding school and she didn't know she was like oh so I hear I hear you've been made captain of this I'm like what like how's that not like Oh, just it's anyway. But it was funny because she's, you know, hanging out with them all and, you know, can tell that Charles 
is unhappy with Diana. Anne is pretty unhappy with her husband. Yeah, Edward is a bully <laughs> at school. Yeah. Um, He's a little dickhead. Yeah, and then Andrew flies in on his helicopter that he has just taken because he's in the Air Force or whatever. And, oh, people just have to watch the episode. And, Michelle, I will find that article that I sent you about this Mm -hmm. appearance and his conversation with the Queen because I was freaking out watching this clip of him talking about, you know, his current girlfriend and this movie that she was in and everything, and it just reflects so well and I don't know if so well is the right word but like the parallels between this conversation of a younger a much younger Prince Andrew talking to his mother about these things compared to what we know of a current Prince Andrew who is retired from royal duties for a very good reason yeah Yeah, so I think this is a perfect place to discuss you know the the license and the fictionalization of certain things because as soon as I watched that I sort of turned to Jack and was like well they've really foreshadowed like obviously never happened it was yeah all of those conversations probably never happened it was like a bit of a you know a creative license to explore the queen's relationship with each of her four children because also Mm. until that point we have never met and you know teenager or adult prince charles prince charles prince edward and prince andrew i believe we yeah. saw them when they were much younger in earlier seasons um and obviously we but have last seen last season lot. was all about charles and anne yeah. wasn't it and we've seen a lot of charles and anne because there is that still that interesting dynamic of being second born in the royal family the same thing that was analyzed with elizabeth and margaret which Mm. I have all, for four seasons so far, have enjoyed thinking about the parallels to William and Harry. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. It really is. And the question I think that everyone's been sort of banding around online is do you feel comfortable with the fact that this show is so popular but clearly has fictionalised certain elements? Because I think that Michael Fagan episode, as brilliant as it was, apparently they didn't talk about Thatcherism when he broke in and she was out of the room straight away or something like that. So they've clearly this season more than ever, a lot of people are saying there's a lot of historical inaccuracies. How do you feel about that? I feel perfectly fine about it because it is... (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I'm fine with it because it is a drama television show inspired by a real family and real historical events but it so far has compressed 30 or 40 years into what 40 episodes or something so far it can't cover everything it covers um and inspires things that are relevant today and are still interested to us today like you know Charles and Diana their relationship um and I think they have to take a little bit more fictional um you know elements they have to create more fictional elements the more modern they get 
because Charles and Diana is, you know, is living memory. When it was season one and we were all like, that's pretty accurate. But it was because <laughs> we didn't know. We didn't really know and there was no way to know. Whereas now, you know, with so much more media and more people in living memory and more accounts, you know, there was there's been documentaries and books and everything about Diana and Thatcher and everything. We just know a bit more. So I think it's easier to, yeah, fictionalise it a little bit. And it's not pretending uh, to be a documentary, you know. No. If you want that, no. watch a documentary, listen to your wrong about, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? People have been talking online about, oh, they can't do this to Harry and William. It's not fair how must they feel seeing their mum portrayed this way? And I just think there's part of me that again brings up that argument of, but your whole life is you literally just have millions and millions of pounds for being a public figure. Yeah. So then I'm sorry, we are actually We're allowed to scrutinise that. Yeah. yeah, and like, why is it okay for us to all be obsessed with it when it's something lovely, like a royal baby or a wedding? And, you know, there were really terrible movies made about, you know, oh, William and Kate's love story and, you know, Harry and Meghan's love story. And isn't it amazing? So, where was the outrage over that? I yeah. think they're like, people are annoyed that these darker bits are being brought up maybe stuff that they didn't realize I certainly would have felt that this was I would have been really shocked by this season had I not listened to your wrong about mm. and sort of heard how accurate that was based on their research I just think that we've been showing a certain image of the royals for so long and we haven't scrutinised them. Exactly. And this whole series has kind of pulled back the veil a little bit. And I think it is really interesting because Queen Elizabeth has been on the throne for so long. I don't know. The thing I just keep thinking watching this season is there's supposed to be two more seasons with a whole new cast aged up again. And I'm like, how far are they going like, will we actually get to royal events that I have, like, a living memory of? Yeah. Like, we must do. We're already in the mid-80s. Like, I don't Yeah, know. I mean, I... How far are we going to go? And, and, you know, I can't remember how people responded to the movie, the Helen Mirren movie, The Queen. I haven't seen Oh, it. it's so good. It's so, so good. It came out in 2006 and Mirren was amazing um, as Queen Elizabeth. So the movie called The Queen is about the immediate aftermath of the death of Princess Diana and the way that the Queen deals with that, probably not in the best way. Um, right. And it is absolutely amazing. And I just... I don't know because I was a lot younger, obviously, 2006. I don't know what sort of backlash there was, if there was any backlash at the time, because that portrays the Queen in not a very good light, I must say. She wasn't, she was very much, I think, and I think what we're seeing with this series as well is very much protocol, royal standards before personal feelings. 
and traditions that haven't changed in so long because by this point she has already been queen for about 30 years which is a very long time yeah and I think that that is what is really interesting about this series and let's be honest none of them come off really well because granted the series is focusing more on the darker storylines it always has for four seasons exactly but I think rather than me feeling bad I, I, I think people made bad decisions I think people did things that weren't great but more than anything for me the the thing that comes off looking the worst in the crown is the institution of the crown itself I just yeah. feel like it's irrelevant in this day and age it's literally just there I just can't think of that that money that is spent yeah, on spoils and yeah oh they raise lots of money for charity but but then again like so does Dolly Parton we might have a vaccine because Dolly Parton gave millions yeah yeah I know that's awesome there's so many things that private individuals also do to raise money and it just yeah it just I don't I don't know I don't see the point of them anymore um my computer battery is about to die so maybe we should wrap this up yeah (laughs) but everyone everyone who watches this needs to listen to you're wrong about I recommend it anyway it's a great it's a great series they also after after I listened to the Princess Diana one listened to an amazing one on Tonya Harding incredible Ooh, yeah so good. that sounds good I'm gonna have to listen to that I haven't found that oh, one yet yeah. but yeah it's a brilliant series about Princess Diana it's so well researched and so well done and it really lays out like everything that you need to know about her and it just really adds that extra level to this season of The Crown, I think. Yeah, 100%. And please, please, please get in touch with us and talk to us about this because clearly we are just into it. We have so much to say. <laughs> so good. So, yeah, thank you so much for listening to us ramble about that and please enjoy our interview. We just could have chatted to this guest for hours oh, and hours. So we didn't get through all our questions. So, you know... Highly recommend this as well. Enjoy. So our guest today has been part of the fat acceptance and body positivity movement since 2014, where she started writing for multiple publications and her own blog. And since that time, she's written about things like intersectionality in the body positivity movement, beauty standards within the community and self-love. Today, we are discussing her brilliant debut, Fatally Ever After. Welcome to Better Words, Stephanie Yeboah. Hello. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful to have you join us. And it is a delightful book to read, even though it touches on some incredibly heavy thing but I think overwhelmingly it's super uplifting and fun so I've I've really enjoyed it even though you know it's not for me it's not a book for me and I think it's wonderful that you make that so clear at the start who you've written this book for and we'll get into that a little bit later but yeah it's a delight so congratulations on the publication 
Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been, it's definitely been, I think, a long time coming because um, this is a book that I think I really needed as a child and as a young teenager. And so being able to have the opportunity to to actually write it for, for women who look like me and, and for younger women has been such a blessing. And I feel very fortunate to be able to be in that position to, you know, share my experience and, 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 uh, yeah the, the, those kinds of things I think I'm I'm so overwhelmed and happy with the response as well yeah that's wonderful just for people who haven't read it how would you describe it to people so I always describe the book as sort of like a love letter to fat black women it's a it's a book that really focuses on the thoughts and perspectives of what plus size black women specifically go through uh, navigating society. So everything from dating to mental health to cultural differences uh, and to TV as well and the media. Um, it's really a book that that delves deep into where body positivity came from, why it's kind of been co-opted, but then also the individual experiences that plus size black women go through. Because I think, you know... It, when you intersect at so many different levels, um, daily life is very different to to somebody that perhaps lives in a more privileged body. So sort of being uh, not only fat, but um, black, but then not only black, but darker skinned black as well. There are so many different levels where we experience, uh, you know, a lot of um, inequality. Um, and so I believe that there needed to be a book out there that spoke about our experiences um especially considering you know the history of the body positivity movement and um the involvement of black women in that um it just felt like there wasn't any we we didn't really have as much say in the movement so I was like nope we need to have something that has our thoughts and our perspectives and you know, it's gonna. It needs to go out there for people to kind of know what we go through on a daily basis. Yeah, you've got to make yourself heard and put yourself in there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, lack of a better word. Um, in the book, you do talk a bit about how you discovered the body positivity movement online. I think in t- about 2012. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about that? The emotional effect that it had on you to find this community and how it began to shape your life? Yeah, definitely. So it was, I remember the first time I came across it was on Tumblr, uh, which is such a relic now. Oh, good old Tumblr. I loved Tumblr. And back then I was very, I was still quite insecure and and, um, had low self-confidence. And I opened up the Tumblr page to document weight loss and, you know, the things that I would eat and every week I would weigh myself. And I think um, Fitspiration was a huge thing on Tumblr at the time. And so I... I almost forgot about that word. Yeah, it was was running wild on that, on that site. And, but back then, because I was in this state of mind where it was like I need to be slim I need to be slim um I opened a page and I started following loads of fitspo bloggers and and all of these kinds of things and I think because of the types of images that I was reposting and and quoting the algorithm kind of I guess, picked up the fact that I was looking at a lot of bodies, the kind of thing. Um, and so I started seeing, I started seeing uh, loads of 
fat women coming up into my feed and I was like what is this why is this infiltrating the inspirational images the inspirate quote-unquote inspirational images that I need to see like I want to see weight loss I want to see this I want to see that but I keep seeing like fat women in bikinis and fat women doing this and it's just like it's not helping me but then my curiosity got the better of me and I clicked onto the little hashtags at the bottom of the of the posts on Tumblr and the hashtags that I kept seeing were body positivity and fat acceptance so I bit the bullet and I clicked onto body positivity and it was almost like I was just transported into Narnia like I was it was just this this page full of just endless scrolling of women who looked like me uh, women who were uploading essays and videos of themselves and photos of themselves just looking amazing, wearing the most amazing clothing that I, I wished I could wear. And suddenly I was like, oh, but this woman is shaped exactly the same, if not bigger, but she looks amazing and she seems so happy and so confident. And this is what I want to be. You know, I don't want to be struggling over here, barely eating and developing unhealthy habits where I could, you know, look like this, this lady. And so I started following those hashtags and really getting involved in, in this community full of women that just seemed to be so unapologetic and so carefree and, and so happy. And it was at that point that I was like, I need this content to be injected into my veins. And so I started following the those hashtags and then slowly but surely it moved over to Instagram and the whole sort of blogging community started from there. So I initially started following the bloggers on Tumblr on Instagram, um, predominantly American bloggers. And once I was kind of in there, I was just, I was so obsessed. I became obsessed with these women and wanting to be like them and wanted to be as confident. And yeah, that was kind of like my, my foray into the the movement and how radical it was and how at the time it was still very underground. So I almost felt like I had entry into like this secret club that nobody knew about where people were, you know, <laughs> providing visibility for bodies that did not carry the same societal privilege as everyone else. Um, it felt like a secret club and I, Oh, I was just, I loved it so much. It, it did so much for my um, for my mental health. I love this story. It's like so often, especially now as social media has, you know, just gotten bigger and we're using it more and it's more powerful and it does different things. I feel like we always talk about the algorithm and what the algorithms are serving us. And <laughs> you click one thing and then it's there forever. But yeah. I love that story that it somehow was like, this is what you need to see. Yeah, exactly. So cool. It must have been the universe just telling me like, look, <laughs> you need to stop looking at this and start looking at this and learn how to love yourself. And here's how we're going to do it. And haven't looked back since. Oh, that's, that's amazing. So cool. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. And I think there's so much, um, you know, to unpick when it comes to our beliefs in, um, you know, our body. And I've I've recently started working with a personal trainer. And one of the things I said to her, I was, I was very wary about, because I've, I've gone through, um, you know, when I was a teenager and absolutely hated myself and, you know, you sort of mentioned the book, like wishing you could just 
you know, take parts of your way and stuff like that. Like I was exactly in that space and I lost a lot of weight, but it was totally through self-hatred. It was just like, I need to be better. I need to be, you know, that sort of thing. And it was like, oh, that doesn't actually make you happy. And so I was a bit wary about actually going back into that personal training space. And I, I was very like hesitant to do that because I didn't want to end up in that mindset again, but I've grown, I've changed and I've, I'm working with a personal trainer who is not about any of that. So that's, Mm. that's brilliant. But you know, some of the things we talked about at first, I was like, I'm not doing this to lose weight. Like I want you to know, I'm not doing this to like, I'm not losing this weight after lockdown sort of thing. I'm doing it because I just want to move and feel healthier. And for me, it was, oh my gosh, the stories you shared about like um, being in school and like exercise and stuff like that. There's been some stuff I've been listening to lately, a wonderful podcast called Maintenance Phase, which is all about debunking diet and wellness culture and they sort of talked about this idea too of when you're in school and you know if you make the the PE lessons it's like torture when you're not a sporty person like it's just (laughs) it is horrible and it it totally affects your relationship with exercise as an adult too because you just in that mindset so for me I was like I want to love doing exercise and I want to enjoy it and you know what a few weekends ago I got up on a Saturday and I was like I I actually just feel like working out like and I was like oh my god who am I oh my god I feel like I oh my god I actually feel like it um but I think what's obviously as you mentioned before it's so wonderful about your ability to do this in this book is you are speaking to people who have intersections at all the different angles of inequality and I do think that this is just such a wonderful thing to see in a book and something to be celebrated too. And the book is a celebration. And like you said, it's a love letter and it's about that positivity. So let's dive into though the body positivity movement because you mentioned it being co-opted before and, you know, people might have started to read a bit about this in 2020 because it has started to be discussed a little bit more as it should, but it's probably something that, you know, most of us as white people don't understand and we're like oh yeah body positivity woo that's great but from your perspective the history how has it been co-opted and changed and where do we go from here where do we go moving forward so yeah with body positivity it was a movement that was uh started initially and very very briefly in the 1950s um by two jewish women actually um in the in the states and they um created this organization where they wanted to kind of uplift and promote um uh fat bodies um Unfortunately, it was an organization that was very short lived because of, I guess, the the changing trends in America at the time. So uh, they kind of went through, uh, you know, the 1960s and the 70s with like the Farrah Fawcett phase and athletic beach bodies and all of these kinds of things. And so the movement kind of it wasn't called body positivity at the time, but it was just like this small organization that just um, liked to promote um the 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 normality of bigger bodies um it probably only lasted maybe like 10 years or yeah five to 10 years or so and then they disbanded um the organization and then yeah america kind of went through their phases of of body ideals uh and then we get to the 90s where we have you know people like kate moss and you know there was this whole huge trend of um, the waif-like body type. And um, Mm -hmm. again, 
to the, the year 2000, we had people like Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. And so for the for the longest time, there was a body ideal that a lot of us felt like we needed to adhere to in order to be seen as acceptable or to be seen as beautiful. Um, didn't really hear much about kind of body equality or, you know, plus size body um, um, awareness until around, I want to say, it kind of started between 2008 to 2010, 11, and that was predominantly on Tumblr again as well. So what we started to see, and this was something that I um, witnessed as I as I um, spoke about earlier, was there were these hashtags that were coming up on Tumblr, um, on Facebook groups as well, um, and on several blogs, uh, blog sites such as LiveJournal, uh, which is such a throwback, like pre-WordPress. It was all about like LiveJournal and Blogger.com. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. please show my age. <laughs> And um, these old social platforms are so fun. I know. Gosh, it's such a relic. It's not even that long ago. It's crazy. It's <laughs> not at all. It shows how quickly like technology moves. Um, and so started seeing hashtags, um, people using fat acceptance movement and body positivity. And when you clicked into these hashtags, you would find that there were communities of predominantly black women, uh, women of color, but then also larger black women. So black, um, sorry, larger fat women. So uh, fat women whose bodies did not or would not be seen as uh, acceptable or socially acceptable. Um, And they would be posting up tons of content just talking about how they wanted to celebrate their bodies and how they wanted clothing brands to 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 create clothing in 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 our sizes and it was a thriving underground community which then eventually sort of 2012 onwards moved uh, migrated towards Instagram and so I think Instagram is where it really really kicked off so what we started to see is um at the time, you know, blogging was still an up and coming industry. We had fashion bloggers and beauty bloggers and things of that nature, but they were all quite small. And so Instagram is where we really started to see the rise of the body positivity movement via uh, bloggers and content creators in both yeah, the US. The rise of the influencer. The right, yep, yeah, the rise of the influencer. So both in the US and the UK. And I think in the UK, it was a lot slower to pick up than the US. So at the time, the US were um quite um advanced in in this movement and so a lot of us in the UK all we 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 predominantly followed um US bloggers and influencers and so um when you would click on this hashtag it would just be loads of women of color and black women wearing the most amazing things and I think in terms of the movement, it was definitely fashion, the fashion aspect of it that kind of spear, spearheaded uh, the movement. Because for the most part, you know, we didn't have um, brands that catered towards larger plus size bodies. And so mm-hmm. to be able to see these amazing content creators wearing the most amazing clothes and being able to fashion new looks and styles out of old clothing was so inspirational for a lot of us. So, you know, back then we had, and still we have people like Gabby Gregg, um, aka Gabby Fresh in America, uh, Nicolette Mason, Kelly B, all of these um, sort of pioneers within the movement um, who are still around today, who really spearheaded the fashion element of the body 
body positivity movement. So yeah, it was ticking along for a while, still underground. People weren't really, people didn't really know about the movement at the time. Uh, But it wasn't until the influencer industry started to really pick up steam that brands started to notice, oh, you know, there are fashion bloggers here who are bigger and they're talking about self-love and and loving themselves and all of these kinds of things. So brands started to slowly hear about the body positivity movement. And of course, being brands, they wanted to kind of capitalise off of that. They wanted to profit off of that. And so what we started to see is we started to see brands um, collaborating with these influencers, which is great. And slowly but surely, body positivity began to, it turned into a buzzword. So between 2014 and 2017, body positivity was everywhere. Brands wanted to really cash in on this new self-love movement. Um, Brands started um, expanding some of their clothing ranges. And for a long time, it was great. It felt like, you know, um, finally people can see that there are, uh fat women who love themselves and you know want to promote this this um this ideology of self-love the movement was a safe space for women who did not carry the societal privileges of being smaller um it was a place for us to celebrate ourselves and to have that visibility and to talk to each other about the traumas that we faced or the, the tough times that we faced and how we can learn to overcome them the only thing about this new visibility with body positivity is that it seemed like when brands and publications started featuring a certain type of plus size body, that's where the issues began. So what we then began to see sort of 2015 onwards is that whenever a brand would do a campaign that focused on self-love or body positivity, they would normally use uh, white, slim or sort of chubby at best Um, very, very beautiful models, um, high cheekbones, flat stomachs, big bums, big boobs, hourglass shape. So that's when we started to see the emergence of women like Ashley Graham and Iskra Lawrence and bodies that resembled their bodies were suddenly being put front and centre of the movement. And that was very damaging because what they were doing is by only really using uh, white women, white passing women and lighter skinned women, they were completely marginalising a community that had helped bring this movement to prominence. And so they alienated the very community that kind of created it in the first place. So it became a situation where a lot of us didn't feel represented anymore because for, for the media... Yes, you know, self-love and promoting or providing visibility for bigger body types is great. But again, they're still the media and they still need something that sells. And unfortunately, sex still sells. So as long as you were fat, but not too fat and, you know, had curves in the quote unquote right places, aka hourglass shape, we will promote you and we will promote everything you're about. But anything that is bigger than that we won't because we don't think that the audience will will like that. And there was this standard of beauty within body positivity that a lot of us felt like we couldn't attain. And so it was a really weird situation in that fat women and fat women of colour felt like they were too fat and too dark to be in the body positivity community anymore, which was weird because, you know, we were the ones that kind of spearheaded the second wave of this of this movement. And so it kind of, it's turned into its own beast now where 
for you know two three four years it was a case of only really seeing acceptable bodies within the movement and not seeing the marginalized bodies that deserved to have that representation and so we're at a point now where I think the definition of body positivity has definitely been skewed I think I think a lot of people have and you know not to kind of compare it to any other movement at all but it's kind of been all lives mattered in a way in terms of people now think that anybody can be a part of the body positivity movement because they've seen the movement be taken up by predominantly smaller um, um, white women and you know mm. non-black women and non you know women who aren't of color and so because people have people in the public have seen how the press and the media have you know glorified and provided visibility for women with privileged bodies i think people have just naturally assumed that oh this is a movement a general self-love movement instead of the political movement that that was supposed to highlight bodies that do not carry societal privilege. That was, you know, the whole kind of um, reason why the, the movement was there. Yeah. And so now that's kind of been taken away and it's been opened up to the masses. And so a lot of us now feel like it is a movement that does not represent us. And yeah, it's unfortunate that it's kind of gotten to this point, but it was it was important for me to kind of really highlight that in the book because I know that a lot of people, you know, not intentionally, um, may not know, you know, the history behind the movement and why it was so important for not only larger fat women, but larger fat women of colour and black women as well. Of course, because depending on your background um, and your, even your age and involvement in social media and everything like that, it does affect on, you know, your experience of these kinds of things. And, you know, my main experience of seeing things like hashtag body positivity and things like that on Instagram, you're right, is white privileged bodies who are like, look, I have cellulite. And it's like, (laughs) good for you, but you're still a size six. Like, (laughs) Now, where do you see that community who has been marginalized? What, what's the next step forward for you guys? Ooh, it's an interesting one because I think for me personally, I don't see myself as part of that community anymore. And I haven't seen it for myself for maybe like the last three years or so. Uh, just because I feel like for me, it doesn't, it's a movement that I feel doesn't, it doesn't represent me anymore or women that look like me. Uh, I don't think it prioritizes, yeah, I don't think it prioritizes the, feelings and thoughts and perspectives of larger plus size women um so it it almost feels like there has been a bit of a schism that has developed within the movement so you have the larger fat women the larger um fat women who aren't abled um and then women of color and black women we've kind of almost broken away and we've kind of just retreated to the uh, fat acceptance movement which is a lot more radical um and I see a lot of women now or a lot of you know activists and people with platforms sort of describing themselves as you know being part of the fat acceptance movement because at least with that movement we know that it's not going to be taken over at all because people still have issues with the word fat. And so they would not want to kind of be represented in a movement that has the word fat in it. So that's almost like our safe space now, because we just know that the, you know, people who recognize and acknowledge themselves as fat and aren't scared to use the word will be under that umbrella. So it's, it's a shame, but we've kind of just given it up in a sense and kind of, because body positivity now it's on this 
runaway train that I don't think can be stopped regardless of people like myself or other people talking about the history about it and and talking about you know why it's important for marginalized bodies I think there are still too many people out there who are very quick to you know um deny that and debunk that and you know because they see it as their their personal space now and their safe space to talk about you know why they may not like themselves or their bodies I don't think it's anything that can be reclaimed anymore it's kind of just out there into the ether and so I think the best thing for women who are larger and 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 non-white women is to yeah just have a community where we are the the majority because we aren't the majority anymore and so we've kind of just yeah just gone gone into our own sort of fat activism and uh, fat acceptance community yeah I mean it's so great to hear that you have found another safe space and a place that you can have that community again because you know like you were talking about before it changed everything in your life and changed how you view your body and, you know, so many parts of your mental health as well. So it's good to hear that. Um, But it is, yeah, like you said, it is important for us to recognise, even if it's kind of gone beyond pulling it back in, I guess. Yeah. Um, Yeah, It's important for us to too far now, but it does kind of suck that it kind of got away from, I guess, the people who really started the movement and who were really involved and, yeah, I mean, it is, it is a bit of a shame, but, you know, some of the really good things that have come out of it is, especially where fashion is concerned, because of the amount of visibility that the movement got, we, we are now in a position where we are, we have a lot more access to clothing uh, where we didn't have, you know, 10, 15 years ago. There is still a very long way to go, but we at least now have some brands that are catering towards plus size bodies. Um the, the the discourse surrounding fatter bodies is now out there so people are a lot more aware which means people are trying to where they can be a lot more um sensitive towards saying certain things and um I think it's you know it for all the bad that has come out of it in regards to the marginalization of specific bodies it has created awareness about living in bigger bodies regardless of if you know the body is maybe one or two sizes bigger there is that kind of um awareness now that one can be big but also happy and healthy at the same time where we didn't have that before so um yeah that's that there are some there are some some tiny good things (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely (laughs) yeah Um, Also in the book, you discussed, you know, your life and your career is so intertwined with your online presence um, and your social media presence. And you do talk about in the book that unfortunately, a lot of the interactions that you have online are negative. Mm. How do you cope with that? How do you keep showing up? Oh, man, the internet is just a weird, it's a weird, weird thing. Horrible place. place. Yeah, it's a weird one. I... So when I when I first started doing it, it used to affect me a lot. Um, as somebody that went through, you know, really horrible bullying as a child, it was very triggering for me. So anytime I would um, post up a picture of myself wearing, you know, a dress or talking about issues that affected me and I would receive horrible comments, um, it, it was a, an occasion where you could get 
so many lovely comments, but then you could see one comment and it would just ruin my, my whole day. Um, so back then I didn't, I didn't take it well at all. It really used to affect my, my mental health and my self-esteem. And I just thought to myself, oh, wow, like the bullies, you know, in school were right. People really do think that I'm, you know, horrible and ugly and all of these kinds of things. But then it got to a point where I just thought to myself, I really need to show up for myself because, you know, at the time where I was, when I started doing it, I didn't feel like anybody else was showing up for me. And especially when the body positivity movement started to uh, become a lot broader and women who looked like me weren't being represented, I really had to think, well, if nobody else is going to do it for me, I have to do it for myself. I want to, again, you know, this is a corny quote, but I want to be the change that I want to see in society. So I I had to keep showing up for myself and also being on this path of self-love and learning how to how to love myself and how to validate myself and see myself of as worthy of being loved and having the same kind of respect that everybody else is is due. And so in terms of how I deal with trolls now and how I started to there's kind of two routes that I tend to take now and it really just depends on the day and my mood so I so the one the one the one thing that I do which is you know it's very sort of you know box standard um is block block people on you know Twitter Instagram removing that access um from them to you because I've noticed that nothing makes a troll angrier is when you starve it of of the attention that it craves um so yeah if I see a comment or somebody says something really horrible I tend to just block them so that they don't have access to my space um if it's somebody that's being really horrible or has gone out on a mission to keep you know commenting on everything that I'm doing or or you know sometimes people tend to take an image of mine and use it as a meme or something what I would then do and I tend to do this specifically on Twitter because for me that's where the worst trolls are um Instagram is actually quite nice in regards to in comparison to Twitter um but yeah Twitter is like yeah. the main terrible one for me Twitter and YouTube are the are the bad ones for me so what I would do in that case is I will then just troll them back badly until they block me <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes I can be very very petty but it just depends on my mood if I'm feeling a bit playful then I'm like okay I'm gonna you know start digging on them until and I will on Twitter what I tend to do is I will quote tweet them so everybody can see their tweet and then see my tweet yeah. above um and I will yeah just be really annoying until they block me um but for the most part it's it's definitely developing a thicker skin I think when you are in this industry and you're representing and talking about things that people aren't used to seeing on an everyday basis you're always going to you know have people that um, are very against what you're doing and what you're saying but I always have to think about the girls growing up who are bigger and darker and you know they don't have that representation and I think about the way in which I grew up and I didn't have any role models really who I looked up to um, aside from people like Missy Elliott and Monique who is a US comedian those were the only two kind of people that 
somewhat look like me in the entertainment industry who are doing amazingly. Um, and so I think about that and not wanting women who look like me to feel alone. And so that's why I feel like I need to continuously show up and, you know, really press the issue about self-love and being able to love yourself at any size, because I want those um, women to grow up in a society where their bodies are normalized. And I think it's important to do that. That is so wonderful. You've spoken so well about that and it's so impressive and good on you for just making fun of the trolls back. (laughs) Thank you. While blocking them and, you know, then they can't do it and that's bad for them as well. Sometimes showing them that they don't actually bother you and maybe giving them a taste of their own medicine, I think... (laughs) It's Why so not? effective, yeah. so effective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just on that, though, you know, obviously you just mentioned at the end showing up for the the younger women, the person, you know, who you were. Um, you mentioned at the start as well, you know, you've had some lovely feedback. Can we just ask about, you know, what has been the feedback that's made you think, oh, my God, I'm so glad that I've done this book and I've I've done this work? Um, so a lot of the feedback that I, that I have t- um, tend to get is um, – Oh, it's so lovely. It's normally from women who are teenagers. So like 13, 14, 15 year old girls who are plus size and they are going through like really horrible times. And I'll get emails from them saying, you know, this outfit that you posted, I went to go and buy it and I felt so confident in it. Um, it's it's the emails and the correspondence that relate to the confidence and the changes that they've gone through. So because when I when I started blogging, my main the main thing that I used to do and I still do is fashion, uh, plus size fashion. And so whenever I would get you know an email or or a comment from somebody saying you know I never used to wear um, spaghetti straps because my arms were so big and stretch marks and I was so embarrassed but then I saw you know you were wearing this bathing suit in the beach and it really made me feel like I could do it too and then they would send me pictures of them on the beach just looking happy and I would just be like reduced to tears because it's just like oh this like it just it makes me so happy that there are women out there who are really trying to take ownership of of their bodies and they can see people such as myself you know as an example of how to kind of live unapologetically and in their truth and so just knowing that the the words that I write and the images that I post um are in some way helping people come to terms with loving their bodies and and loving their um their roles and their stretch marks and all of these things is is so heartwarming because there is now an essence of not feeling alone and I think sometimes when you exist in a in a body that is not um privileged even though like logically you know that there are other you know people with the same body around the world if you live in a specific community or you live somewhere where you don't see your body type as much it can be so alienating and so like you know one example for me is when I posted a photo of myself of my inner thighs um because I was like you know um get a lot of chub rub and so sometimes your thighs can be like a lot darker than everywhere else and I know that a lot of women have that issue where they feel a bit embarrassed about the their darker inner thighs because you know a lot of people relate it to either being like dirty or or you know unhygienic and all of that kind of stuff and it yeah it can be so it can be so like the anxiety surrounding that is 
horrible. And sometimes you feel like you're the only person that has that specific issue. And so, yeah, one day I just posted a picture, literally just like, open my legs and like took a picture of it and I'm just talking about it and you know the, the the messages and comments of women who have the same thing made me feel good because then it was like okay so I'm not the only one that that has this or suffers from this like I'm not you know like a freak or anything like that it's a normal thing that happens yeah. if you have thighs that constantly rub together and it's just a normal thing it shouldn't be seen as abnormal so for me mm-hmm. women feeling like their bodies are normalized um is one of the greatest bits of, of feedback that I think I could I could possibly get that is so great isn't it ridiculous how we all convince ourselves that we're only ones that yeah. have like you know whatever it may be it could be a thousand things I'm so <laughs> glad you mentioned that specifically though because like I literally, until you said that, I was like, I would never, ever tell anyone that. I was like, it is such a shameful thing. Yeah. But, you know, I was a bit, I was a bit bigger than this in high school. We, we lived in a tropical place where it was hot all the time and yeah. very humid and we had to wear school dresses. So of course my legs rubbed together, yeah. but you know, and I've, I, you know, I only was telling a friend about this the other day because obviously people are like, why are you in England? Isn't Australia amazing and sunny? And I love it there. And I'm like, you know what? It's actually not that great. Oh my God, um, no. Michelle was not meant to live in tropical Queensland. Oh. I was not. But you know, like I was like, you know what? When I was a teenager, you know, going to school, literally every day I would come home in, you know, it would be a rare day that I would come home, not in agony with burning pain between my thighs mm. from rubbing together and even now like you said that discoloration yeah. is still there and I and literally until you said that just then felt so ashamed of it but it's like yeah actually this happens to other people and it's not something to be ashamed of but oh my god it was my secret shame in school and yeah. I, I put myself through so much pain and like literally some days it was just agonizing and I now I'm just like oh my god yeah it's why did you put up with it it's such a weird (laughs) thing and I think a lot of the shame is also tied to because of the location like it's near you know our genitals and you know growing up there's such a huge you know we go through puberty and then you hear all of these things and then you hear you know men talking about oh, you know, it has to smell like this and it has to look like this. And so that we already have these hang-ups about our genitals when we're really young. And so, you know, when it comes to things such as sex and things like that, there is like a shame of, oh my gosh, because it's so close to that area, you don't want, it's almost like you don't want, you know, the guy or the girl to kind of feel like, oh, she must be dirty around there because, you know, the inner thighs are this colour. And so I I do think there is kind of like a sexual element to, to why we feel or why we can feel so insecure about discoloration, especially within like the inner thighs. Cause I think, you know, if it was anywhere else, like hyperpigmentation, mm. sure. We'll probably still feel a bit, you know, um, not embarrassed, but just very wary of, of the location. But because it's in such an intimate place, uh, there is added yeah. shame and uh, anxiety surrounding it. Yeah, absolutely. So Let's talk specifically about the book deal, though, and the journey to publication. So what was that process like for you? Like, how do you go from blogging to book? Oh, it was such, oh, it was a, it was a process. It was, um, <laughs> it was a process that kind of, it, how long did it take, perhaps? Um, two, 
three years, perhaps. Yeah, so in 2017, late 2017, I started to think about, you know, I was doing a lot of blog posts at the time and I was like, you know, it would be really cool if I could get like an anthology of just like all of the blog posts that I write to have like in a nice little book for people to to read. So it was on the fringes of my mind about writing a book, but also my main thing was that I wanted to write it specifically for plus size black women, but also I wanted it to be accessible for everybody outside of that to read if they wanted to know more about, you know, the history behind um, body positivity and just, you know, what, you know, other women have to go through. So I started writing like notes on on my laptop of, you know, what I would talk about and things like that. And I remember getting a DM uh, on Twitter from uh, an agent from, oh, a, public, uh, a publisher that I won't mention because they were... I don't want to get them in trouble. <laughs> but, yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> um, no but at the time, you know, they were really cool. They were like, you know, Steph, we've been reading your blog for years and we really like what you write. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And I was like, actually, yes, I have. Uh, and so <laughs> I went funny to go... you should ask. Funny you should ask. <laughs> yeah, so I went to go and meet with them and we discussed, you know, what it might be about and the plans and all of that. And um, they were like, do you have an agent? And I was like, I what's that I don't know what that is and and the lady said you know well you know in order to kind of move the process along you need to find an agent somebody that can represent you that kind of stuff and so again literally I went onto Twitter and I was like guys how do you find an agent like what do you do what are the yeah steps? how do you get a book agent how do you get what a book is agent? This? This, is, this is the part of publishing that no one understands how it works <laughs> yeah I was I was so like like I was just I didn't know what to do at all so I literally the amount of people we've interviewed who said that they literally googled how do you get a literary agent yeah (laughs) that's what I did as well and every single article was different and I was just like I'm just gonna go to Twitter because that seems to be where I find all of my gems so literally just typed in you know hi guys how do you find an agent what do I do what do I do and then I got like 15 replies from like different agents um who were all like oh Steph are you thinking about writing a book let's have a meeting kind of thing and I was like oh wow okay um so I was like oh okay so then I, I spoke to all of these different agents and then I um I eventually had a meeting with my current agent now um Hattie and um yeah, so she she DM'd me on Twitter and we we kind of spoke back and forth on on email. Then we met and spoke and spoke about you know my vision and what I wanted to do, and she was completely on board with it and so 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 lovely. And so I signed with her. And so what I kind of say now is that honestly, it's really you know as bad as Twitter is, sometimes utilizing it um, can be really good because you know I feel like that's where people tend to kind of look for new talent as well is definitely on Twitter Mm -hmm. so for me just asking oh does anybody know an agent that I can speak to um I got loads of authors as well who were sending me links of people so that was a really good thing so um started working with Hattie and we went back to the publisher who I went to before and um we spoke about you know what I wanted the book to be and I wrote the proposal because at the time I didn't know that 
for non-fiction, you have to write a proposal first, as opposed to fiction, where you literally just write the whole book and then you start (laughs) shopping it out. Yeah, so that was a bit of a shock to me. It's quite different, yeah. So I I wrote like this 50-page proposal that included, you know, sample chapters and things, and I presented it to the publisher and they said, oh, this is great. But we wanted it to be more scandalous. We wanted it to be about influences and the gossip. And we want you to talk about, you know, we wanted it to be like really um, gossip led. And I was like, no, this isn't what I do. I'm very much about, you know, theory and, you know, talking about our experiences. And, you know, they, they, you know, they were quite a huge publisher. So I was very shocked that they kind of wanted this kind of scandalous uh scandalous led content so we ended up you know not going with them and then um my agent Hattie she started sending the um proposal out to several other publishers and we heard back from um Hardy Grant who I'm currently with and we went into their office to go and talk about the proposal and there were a couple of other publishers that showed interest um in the book as well but I think with Hardy Grant the reason that I went with them is because it was just the enthusiasm that they had it was that you know it was a case of them being really fascinated and wanting to tell my story and the stories of other women who otherwise would probably have never gotten that chance they were very on board with everything that I wanted to talk about and do I said from the offset, you know, I want it to be specific to a certain demographic and they were totally on board. I think because the commissioning editor there, um, she's not white, so she's Asian. I felt like she really just got the fact that it was important to be, you know, really diverse and really inclusive. And it really made a huge difference to me um, about how enthusiastic she was. And the whole team at Hardy Grant have been Oh, absolutely amazing. You know, they communication is something that's really, really important to me. And so, you know, every couple of days they would check in to see how I was. And then we spoke about, you know, the format of the book and how it would be and um, the deadlines and things like that. And so after I signed with them, it came now it came for me to to actually write the book. And so here's where it kind of gets a bit not funny, but it was just a bit uh, interesting. Um, So because I'm, you know, I'm very new at this whole sort of game, I didn't really understand what certain terminologies meant, I guess. So because they wanted the book to come out quite soon, by soon, I mean, like in a year, um, they said, you know, we want we want the book to come out in September. And um, we think that's a good place to kind of market the book. So if you could, um, could you, we'll give you a deadline of the 20th of December, which was uh, 20th of December last year. So when I signed with Hardy Grant, it was in late July, August. And they were like, oh, you know, you've got until like the 20th of December to hand it in. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, Started writing, started writing. It got to November and I was still writing, still writing. And then I had some other jobs that I had to had to do because outside of writing I also do some travel journalism as well so I had to go to um I say I had to go to like it was a big issue I had to go to St Lucia which was was, just so draining um so I so I, I went to St Lucia to to do some reporting there and then I came back and then two weeks later I had to go to Japan 
And so my deadline was sort of like two, three weeks, no, two weeks away. And I went to Japan. I did what I had to do there. And then I ended up breaking my ankle um, there. And I was out there on my own. And I didn't, I don't oh, speak God. Japanese. So it was, um, <sighs> it was, it was a huge ordeal, ordeal because I decided, you know, to be a super tourist and go and climb some random mountain there. Cause I was like, Oh, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do some <laughs> hiking and it's going to be great. Um, but then I got to the top and the altitude completely knocked me out. And as I was walking down, I tripped up on an exposed tree root and I tumbled down the mountain and broke my ankle and so, oh, my God. oh yeah, it was an absolute drama. Um, my, my, the magazine I was writing for had to kind of facilitate everything behind the scenes. And because of the time difference, they had to do it at like 3am. And so, yeah, there was a lot that happened on the trip that was just so random. Um, yeah. but then I got back and the deadline was a week away. And so I was like, I'm somebody that I can't go over deadlines because I get very, anxious I can't I can't do um I always try to adhere by by deadlines and so it got to the 20th of December and I handed it in and told my you know told the editor look it's all done like it's it's all complete and then she sent me an email back saying what do you mean it's all complete and I was like it's done like the whole book is done all the research you know I I had to interview loads of women for the for the book as well and so you know I really stressed myself out trying to finish the book and then she was just like oh okay so when we said deadline I just wanted to it was literally just a date just to see where you were in like the first or the first or second chapter and I was just like you could have told I literally excuse me the whole (laughs) book so it took me yeah I literally I wrote it took me two months to write the book um and I was really like stressed stressed <laughs> and like oh, I was I was on the edge and then I had to travel twice and so I was like oh my gosh I can't do this I can't do this only for only for her to be like Steph this is incredible but we only really wanted like a chapter or two by this point and I was like well you've got the finished stuff now so I'm I you can it's in your hands you can edit it or do whatever I but yeah so it was just like that is so funny I I literally thought yeah I literally thought I had to rush and rush and rush to do it but they were like no it's just we just want to see where you are but um yeah they were they were very happy that I was able to deliver deliver the whole manuscript um I'm sure they were I think most nonfiction <laughs> publishers and editors don't expect a full manuscript almost you, a year out. Yeah, that would I, never happen. And that's the thing. I didn't know that. I didn't know that it was a thing where apparently authors sometimes can take a long time to deliver stuff in. I thought it had to be like really prompt. So I really made sure to kind of yeah. do everything on time. And she was just like, oh, Steph, you're like my dream author. I can't believe you did this on time. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> Like, please don't expect this from me again in the future. Exactly. I will yeah, not be doing that again. Exactly, totally. exactly. Yeah. Um, can we just talk briefly about about the book as well? So, had you always envisioned it to be, you know, just to explain to people, obviously, because this is an audio format. It's a beautiful hardback book with these beautiful, like, embossed um things on the cover and then it's like full color nice thick paper and then it's like color as well so there are some beautiful patterns beautiful illustrations throughout and then it's like part essays and research and history and then part like you've got your like Steph's how-to guide bits and like I love that and then interviews with other women and I love that you've got like dms and stuff but it's like 
in little breakout boxes and everything. So had you always imagined that that's what it would look like rather than like a traditional paperback book of, you know, just a bunch of writing? Oh, absolutely. And one of the main reasons for that is because I have very short, my, my, my memory span is just terrible. I, my attention span is so bad. And when it comes to nonfiction books, I am somebody that likes to be entertained. I like to like open the page and see something new or jazzy. I can't, I'm really bad at just reading straight blocks of text um, because after like 10 minutes, I'll be like, as even though the, the, the content is engaging, I'm a bit like, but I want to look at this and I want to see colour and I want to, you know, see something quite sort of colourful. I want to flip to the picture pages. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I always, t- anytime I read nonfiction, I always flip to the pictures first because I want to, I want to see like a variety of different bits of content. And so that was yeah. another reason. And you want to look and like see what their family looks like and their childhood house mm. and all of that stuff that's always in the picture section. Yeah. And so yeah. that was one of the reasons why I went with Hardy Grant because they are, that's like their speciality. They do nonfiction books only, but they're, the, 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 their designs are absolutely beautiful. I mean, if you go onto their website and see like the books that they that they represent, they are design is their thing. And I knew from the offset that I wanted the front cover to be mustard yellow because um, it's my favorite color. And then like from a commercial point of view, I was kind of thinking, well, if you go into a bookshop, you know, bright yellow is really going to stand out at you. <laughs> so, yeah, because um, yeah. there's a lot of pink and stuff, especially in this space. I feel like there's a lot of pink pastel that sort of stuff but your book is like bam wow (laughs) yeah I I definitely wanted it to be um bright yellow and embossed I just wanted different elements for people to look at and pick out and be like oh there's that and oh there's that detail um I wanted there to be illustrations in there as well I wanted it to be a fun read because the content for the most part, can be quite heavy in the book, especially when I speak about my experiences. So I wanted everything outside of that in the book to be quite uplifting and fun and bright and happy. And the reason that I did the structure like that, uh, so in the book, you know, I start off with my personal anecdotes that provide context to the theory that I then go on to talk about in the second half of the book. Then at the end, I speak about, you know, tips and tricks and like proactive things that people can take from the book in order to, you know, improve their their confidence or their self-esteem, as well as interviews with other women. And I, I wanted to do it like that because I didn't feel like I could write a memoir. I felt like I was too young. I'm also really boring. So nothing really exciting has happened for me to write like a whole memoir. Um, But then also I wanted to write, I wanted to back up my thoughts and my feelings with the actual theory. So people just knew that I wasn't, you know, talking out of my ass like I wanted I wanted there to be (laughs) solid evidence to say like look this happened this happened this happened um you know in the book I talk about eating disorders and how black women suffer a lot from eating disorders but it's not something that is spoken about a lot even though the numbers and percentages are quite high so those were like little bits of data that people have found really interesting because before then people you know wouldn't have known about a lot of the the research that I put in there and so for me, it was important for the book to have a stable background of um, from which to lean on in terms of the research. And then I also want people to take things out of the book and take the tips and the tricks and advice that I think I could dish out. So that's why the, each chapter sort of ends with something that the audience can take away. Um, and also, I think providing 
interviews in the book was important for me because throughout this whole thing, it's been so important for me to have, again, the feelings and the perspectives of plus size women to be heard. So for me, it's kind of their book as well. I want them to to tell their stories and to, to let people know, you know, these are the things that we are going through, that we have gone through. You know, the I mean, the medical chapter alone is absolutely heartbreaking with some of the stories that women have submitted about the bias and prejudice that they've gone through within the medical sector. It's absolutely heartbreaking and yeah it was important for me to to put that in there because I don't want people to just take my word for it it's a case of you know this happens worldwide globally and it's important that these experiences are are spoken about yeah exactly and almost everything you just said about including other people's experience and research in the book is you know it's like you've been saying I guess throughout this whole interview it's not just one person's experience it's not just your experience it's a whole community and we need to give them the space and talk about it more yeah and what's good about that format as well is that you know especially for the young girls like you said like 13 14 who are reading this now it's the sort of thing that when you are having a down day or you're going through a bad period you can pick up you know if you have a bad date you can pick up that chapter on dating and be like yeah it's not just me it's not I'm not the problem here this is not this is not me that's the problem and you can go back to it and take what you need when you need it as well as consuming it as a whole and I think that's especially for those teenage women for everyone but like you said the book that you wish you'd had when you were younger that you could go back to I think it's beautiful and you've done a really good job and especially when when we know now that you did you wrote the majority of it so quickly yeah I I mean I don't it's such a blur thinking back on about how I did it I just remember um because I I started going to a workspace because I can't work or write at home at all um I just I just feel weird sort of working somewhere where I should be relaxing and stuff so I would go to like this workspace uh, in East London every day and I would just be there for like 12 hours a day. And I just, I don't, yeah, I was just, it was very much um, sponsored by caffeine, that book, I think. Just (laughs) so much coffee. I I think a lot of writers would say that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. honestly. Oh, that's so great. Um, I think we'll have one last little question and maybe ask you, what do you hope your readers take away from this book maybe like the one thing if they take away one thing the one thing that I think readers that I would love for readers to take away from this book is the ability to be seen because yeah growing up and you know not seeing ourselves represented or represented well on tv and in media not being able to have icons or role models to look up to and then coming into the body positivity community and being almost completely excluded has really run its toll on a lot of uh, larger plus size women and larger plus size black women to the point where we feel like there is no visibility and that nobody you know cares about the things that we go through so I really want for women um, women and, and men to feel seen by this book and to know that you know they're not alone. We're all going through this together. And one day, hopefully we can get to a a position in society where we are treated with the same respect and the same sort of, you know, common human decency as everybody else. And to be given those opportunities to really show people and show society what we bring, what we can do. um, And just, 
yeah, live a normal life free from fat phobia and free from, you know, stereotypes and, and all of these things. So for me, visibility and seeing seeing yourselves in other people is is the big takeaway perfect note to end on thank you so much for joining us today we've had such a great time chatting to you could just chat to you all day you're wonderful (laughs) and you know if anyone if anyone's listening to this and and has enjoyed the chat as well like I can assure you reading the book feels like this as well it feels like you're just sitting down and having a chat and sharing all these funny but also sometimes really sad stories um so you know if people haven't read the book yet they need to go out and find it because it is wonderful um so where can people find you and follow you online as well uh so you can find me at my uh blog which is stephanieyaboa.com um for anything sort of body positivity self-love or fashion related it's um my instagram so it's instagram.com at stephanieyaboa and then on twitter where i'm normally just arguing with racist and fatphobic people it's <laughs> at stephanieyaboa on twitter as well so just my full name everywhere yeah. <laughs> yeah perfect thanks again for joining us today it's been wonderful thank you so much for having me thank you for listening to better words you can chat to us on instagram at better words pod and follow me michelle at unfinished bookshelf and me caitlin at just a bookish babe if you liked this episode please share it with a book loving friend and leave a rating or review mm-hmm.